launching off point of the start of the new covenant, okay? And with what we're gonna look at this morning, it's setting the stage for the coming of Jesus. And Malachi is going to really uh, give us a few things that we're familiar with, a few uh, prophecies. Zechariah is gonna give us a bunch, all right? And they're all pointing to Jesus. And I say that the stage needs to be set because if the king of kings is coming to declare himself as the king, okay, you need to have a temple, right? Which Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. You also need to have the city of Jerusalem, which Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. And so what we're gonna look at is the stage being set for the coming of the king and a lot of opposition, a lot of fighting going on to prevent that from happening. And I hope that as we go through this and we see God's hand working, that we get encouraged, we get challenged, and maybe even see some things that maybe we have fallen into that is preventing or hindering our relationship with the Lord, all right? And we'll see that the enemy is very subtle and desires to shut down the things that God wants to do in our lives and through our lives. So we begin chapter 9 of the book of Zechariah. And from what we looked at last week, we know that... Um, that Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave a decree for the people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. And he helped fund that work, okay? So it was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of opposition, a lot of fighting from the enemy, a lot of challenges, and they actually gave up. And they kind of went dormant for about 20 years, all right? They just dragged their feet. And so... God sent Haggai, God sent Zechariah to encourage them and to build them up, and they ended up completing the temple. It was done, all right? And so at this point in Zechariah, the Lord is giving prophecies concerning how he's going to deal with Israel's enemies, how he's going to deal with his people, but throughout the last chapters are key prophecies that point to Jesus, his first coming and his second coming, okay? So we're in Zechariah chapter 9, and these are going to be familiar to you, all right? Chapter 9, verse 9, look at what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we know what this is pointing to, right? We've, we've got the benefit of being able to look back on the fulfillment of this. And this was the triumphal entry when Jesus came into Jerusalem. This is why you have to have a Jerusalem. If he's going to come to Jerusalem, it wasn't built yet. It was still in ruins, okay? So he's going to come, the triumphal entry, 
and humble, mounted on a donkey. When a king took his rightful place on the throne, he did not come riding into the city on a horse. The horse was a symbol of war, all right? When the king took his throne, then he came riding on a donkey, an animal of peace, okay? A humble element, animal, okay? And so you might remember when uh, David was about to die and his son, uh, boy, I'm now having a brain cramp, Jehoram tried to usurp the throne and do it under David's nose. David got wind of it and he told his leaders to get Solomon, get the king's donkey and lead him out in a procession before the people and say, you know, King Solomon live forever, basically, and proclaim his ascension to the throne, all right? So whenever you saw a king taking his position, it was always on a donkey. So when Jesus came into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry, he was coming in proclaiming that he was the expected Messiah. He was the king of kings that they were looking for. And they cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. And that word Hosanna means save now. And it tells us here in Zechariah that he is righteous and having salvation. Okay, so they understood and they're looking to Jesus to be their savior, to be their king. But they had the wrong perspective. They were thinking that he was going to be a military leader and take out Rome and ascend the throne rather than dealing with the bigger enemy, sin, death, the grave. So they kind of just didn't quite understand the big picture. But this is the first that we see here, the first prophecy about what's about to happen. All right. Now, if we go over to chapter 11, verse 12, and Zechariah is dealing with the people, and there's an event here, and it points again to Jesus. And Jesus refers to this. Chapter 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as many, they weighed out my wages as 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, who is this referring to? This is Judas, right? This is what Judas did. And you notice that Zechariah in his prophecy, he says, the Lord said to me, so God is speaking. And then he says, the lordly price at which I was priced. So God is saying, this is the price of betrayal that they priced me with. And they took it and they threw it into the house of the Lord. Remember that Judas had remorse and guilt and grief. And so he took the, the money and he threw it in the temple. Again, setting the stage. 
If this is going to happen, you have to have a temple. You have to have Jerusalem. So he throws it at the feet of the Pharisees. And they're like, well, this is blood money. We can't do that. We can't keep this. So they bought the potter's field as a burial place for the poor. All right. So again, the stage is being set. Now, if we go over to chapter 12, verse 10, we see at the second coming of Christ, okay? Chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on, and God speaking, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. When was the only time God was pierced? On the cross, okay? When Christ comes back and they realize, oh my word, we crucified the King of kings and the Lord of lords, they will mourn. They will understand that they crucified God, all right? Going on down to... Uh, Chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. This is what Jesus referred to when the disciples were saying, Oh, we're, we're sticking with you. We're not going to abandon you and everything. And Jesus said, Quoting this, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And sure enough, when they came into the Garden of Gethsemane and they arrested Jesus, they fled. They ran in fear, just as Zechariah prophesied and just as Jesus had said. So this is pointing to that time of the crucifixion. And then going on to 14, verse 9, it again points to the second coming. Uh, oh, my apologies, not 9, uh, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so the one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And we talked about this last week, where when Christ comes back, there will be a massive earthquake. It will split the Mount of Olives, and those being persecuted by the uh, Antichrist will be able to run and escape Jerusalem. Okay, So all of this is going on. And what I want us to do now is go over to Malachi. Chapter 3. And we're going to be at uh, verse 17, uh, verse 1, I'm sorry. Now we've got the things about Jesus. Now we have John, all right? And it's going to refer to the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of Messiah, all right? So God says through Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Again, we've got to have a temple. We've got to have Jerusalem. Set the stage. And the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. The messenger is John. John the Baptist. Jesus said that John was the one that would come before him, okay, that came before him to get people ready. And John said that, you know, he, when he was speaking to the people, remember how he said, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and there will be a purging, there'll be a cleansing, and there was that call to repentance, and this is reiterated in chapter 4 of Malachi, verse 5. And this is how the Old Testament is wrapped up. This is the last book of the Old Testament. It was written either at the very end of Nehemiah's work in, in Jerusalem or right after he was done. Okay, So we're going to actually bounce back to when when uh, Ezra was going to Jerusalem and Nehemiah was. But I want to keep that chain going of, okay, these are the prophecies about the coming of Jesus. These are the prophecies concerning the coming of uh, John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, okay? And then we'll bounce back. But this is the last verse or two verses of Scripture, Old Testament, before 400 years of silence and then John the Baptist and Jesus come on the scene, okay? The last words of God to the people of Israel before Christ comes. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So you may remember when Jesus was with the disciples in Jerusalem at the temple and they're leaving, going to the Mount of Olives, the disciples make the statement, um, why does it say, why do the scriptures say that Elijah must come first? And they're talking about the end times. And Jesus said to them, if you're able to accept it, Elijah already has come and he was referring to John the Baptist. And John was the one who was preparing the hearts of the people to receive their Messiah, calling them to repent, calling them to make way already the way of the Lord into their own hearts. And he was getting that ready. But in the book of Revelation, it talks about two prophets that will come. One of them is probably Elijah, and he will be preaching the message of the king during the tribulation time. Some people think the other prophet is Moses. Maybe, but Moses died. Others think it might be Enoch because he was prophesying and walking with the Lord before the judgment of the flood, all right? So 
I kind of think it's probably going to be Enoch and Elijah, but that's because neither of them died, all right? So, but it doesn't matter, all right? God knows who it is, and he'll send them when the time comes and everything. But, so I don't want to be dogmatic on that. That's just kind of what I think. But Elijah, we know, is coming back, okay? And have, has anybody ever seen or been to a Passover Seder? Okay, so you know how there is an empty seat left at the table? Who's that for? It's for Elijah, okay? They're always looking for the coming of Elijah and trying to remember Elijah will come first. So every time they take Passover which is a memorial of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb who was slain so that the judgment of God could pass over his people because they sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice over their homes in faith, okay? So they are believing and anticipating the coming of Elijah to prepare the way of Messiah, so this is just a big setting up of the stage. The curtains are being pulled in. Everything is being set. All the stuff is being put in place so that the king and his messenger can come and bring the new covenant in the blood of Christ to the world. This is such an incredible and important event. And the enemy of God, the enemy of humanity, Satan himself, is bent on trying to stop it or hinder it or destroy it with everything he has, okay? And that's what we see now. We're going to go back to the book of Ezra. We'll pick it up in chapter 7. So you can turn over there. Are we, are we kind of getting the idea here? So we've finished the temple being built and the prophecies of the coming Messiah I jumped ahead to when Nehemiah was around and looked at Malachi and the prophecies of the coming of John the Baptist. Now we're actually going to go back to that time period after the temple was built in Ezekiel chapter, or not Ezekiel, Ezra, the other E-guy, Ezra chapter 7. Isn't it strange how this is at the end of everything and it's before the Psalms and stuff? It's actually before the first book of the Bible, Job, the real first book of the Bible. So that's kind of weird the way it's all set up. But here we are, chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. So before we delve into this, the Passover is observed in chapter 6. We come into chapter 7, there's a span of 57 years between chapter 6 and chapter 7. What's going on during that time? Dari uh, Cyrus is gone, okay? He's no longer king. He has another son who comes in uh, Cambyses. He takes the throne. But we remember that when we were reading in Ezra earlier, there were letters that were written to Xerxes, right? 
Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, he came after Cyrus. Now, we also remember that he is the husband of Esther, okay? So this is what's going on. And we tend to think when we read the book of Esther, oh, we've got this really crummy guy, Haman, who's got a uh, complex for having power and all this stuff. And we don't realize that letters were being written to Xerxes falsely accusing the Jews of rebuilding Jerusalem so that they could rebel against Xerxes, which nothing was further from the truth. So that's what's going on there. So you've got this bad uh, information that's getting to Xerxes. Then you've got Haman, and Haman was an Agagite, all right? Why does that matter? An Agagite was a descendant of Agag, or the Agagites were the kings of the Ammonites. So when God first brought Jerusalem, or Israel out of Egypt, the first people after Egypt to attack them and try to wipe them out were the Amalekites, all right? The Amalekites, not the Ammonites, the Amalekites. So they tried to wipe them out. What they did was they came in behind the Israelites and they went after the children and the weak and those who were weighed down with stuff and started just wiping them out. And God intervened and God pronounced judgment upon the Malachites. You fast forward it to the rule of Saul. And God commanded through Samuel to wipe out the Amalekites. Saul decided he was going to spare the life of King Agag and, and some other folks. And when Samuel called him on the carpet, it's like, oh, well, hey, you know, I just wanted to save the best for God. And we know the story. God judged Saul. King Agag was killed by Samuel. And Saul lost the kingdom. So Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites whose ambition was to destroy the people of Israel from the get-go. And here we are, before we're launching into the coming of Messiah, let's do a last-ditch effort for complete genocide of the Jewish people. Let's slander them, let's send letters, let's try to shut down the work, and hey, let's get a guy in there, and I'm talking from the enemy's position, Satan's position, let's put a guy in there who is going to bring about the genocide of the Jewish people, and we have no Messiah. It's kind of like what Pharaoh tried to do in wiping out the little boys in Egypt to try to prevent Moses from coming. Satan's tactics don't change. But God put Esther and Mordecai in place. This young gal becomes the queen of Xerxes. And God uses her to spare his people and give favor. And I say this because where we're at now in Ezra 7, notice in verse 1 it says, Now after this in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Artaxerxes is Ahasuerus' son. Esther is stepmom. You think there might have been a little influence as to what was going on? in Artaxerxes' life? 
Yes. And he had a very favorable heart toward the people of Israel, like Cyrus and like Darius. So with that heart, Artaxerxes actually tells Ezra, hey, dude, I want you to go check on the spiritual well-being of the people of Israel. Huh? Okay. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. And so, how are we doing on time? Oh boy, okay, here we go. He was a priest and a scribe. I want you to go to, let's go to verse 7 of chapter 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and temple servants. So this is the second uh, return to, to Jerusalem, okay, under Ezra. First was under Zerubbabel, second under Ezra. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. This is a key phrase here. You're going to see it over and over in Ezra and in Nehemiah. For the good hand of his God was on him. Why? Verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Okay? So God actually sends Ezra to take care of the spiritual needs of the people. Go down to verse 14. This is the letter that was sent with Ezra. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. This was strictly how are they doing spiritually, which is in your hand, and also carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. So the goal here is to get things right. We have the temple. It's been there. 57 years have passed. There's been a lot of garbage. And Artaxerxes says, Ezra, you go. You teach them the word of God and take care of their spiritual well-being. And I'm going to send gold and silver. And we've got some more utensils for the temple. We're going to send those back. You buy the bulls, you buy the goats, you buy everything you need for the sacrifices to get Jerusalem and Judah back on track. This is important because during the time of that 57 years, Jerusalem and Judah went right back into their old garbage. They had accomplished the temple and once that was done, they just became lethargic. They became complacent and they started compromising again. And so as Ezekiel or Ezekiel, Ezra was teaching the word of God and the people were being convicted, it was being brought out that they were intermarrying with the pagans again and adopting their idolatries and committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. 
They were going right back into the same old patterns. And so Ezra dealt with that. He called it out. He called them to repent. And it wasn't an easy thing. They had their marriages. They had their children. And the false doctrines and the demonic teachings and all had infiltrated the people of God once again. And they needed to clean house. They needed to sever those ties and get right with God again. It wasn't easy. But they did it. Now, while this is going on, God continues to move because Jerusalem is still a rubble heap. It's a mess. They started to try to get things moving 57 years before, but the letters were sent to Xerxes saying, man, they're going to build the city and they're going to rebel against you. And they got afraid, freaked out, shut everything down, and nothing went further. So now God is beginning to work on the city. And so 12 years after this time with Ezra, word goes to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a cupbearer, okay, for King Artaxerxes. The cupbearer was not a butler, okay. He wasn't a waiter. The cupbearer was probably the most trusted person in the king's inner circle, okay? And this is why. The cupbearer drank the wine and tasted the food before the king. And the reason for this is, if the food was poisoned or the wine was poisoned, the cupbearer would die first. Not a very desirable position to have, you know, for your career choice, because uh, plenty of people want to kill the king. But this was the type of relationship that God had put Nehemiah in with Artaxerxes. Okay. So what happens is Nehemiah gets the news that Jerusalem is a mess. And it breaks his heart. And he's weeping and he's crying and he's praying to God. And he goes in before Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes notices he's been crying and he's sad. And he goes, what's going on? Now, in the Persian law, you could not have a depressed countenance or be sad in the presence of the king. It could cost you your life. You came before the king, everything's great, because you're a great king, and I love you, and I'm happy. So you had to put on a good face. Nehemiah didn't. And Artaxerxes said, what's going on? This is, you're not sick. This is, this is a heart issue here. And he just came clean with the king. He said, you know what? I got word that the city of my fathers, the city of my God is in ruins and it's killing me. It's breaking my heart. And Artaxerxes says to him, so what do you want to do? And I love the response that Nehemiah gives. He just gives a quick prayer. He says, so I you know, called out to the Lord. Ah, what do you want? And he said, let me go back and rebuild the city. Now remember, letters were coming to his father about the building of the city saying that they were going to rebel against Persia. And now Nehemiah is saying, let me build the city. Artaxerxes' response was, 
how long will you be gone? And what do you need? The third group leaves Babylon and goes back home with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says over and over again, the good hand of my God was upon me. God was with me. This is important. We talked about this last week. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When God has something for you to do, when God wants to work in your life, through your life, for your life, you're not going to be able to do it in your own strength. But his spirit indwells you as a believer, and he will enable you to do that which he has called you to do. Right? He will give you, Paul says, both the will and to do according to his good pleasure. That's encouraging. And so Nehemiah, with the financial backing of the Persian Empire, the biggest empire to exist at that time, is going now to rebuild the city of God. Why? Because the king is coming. We need to have the city ready for their king. The temple's ready. Now we've got to get the city. So go over to Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're just going to go through a couple of things very, very quickly here. He gets there. He looks at the condition and it's a mess. The people are discouraged. They're being attacked. They're being harassed and everything by the, the enemies around them. And so in verse 17 of chapter 2, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruin, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that were spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands, for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem and the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." Don't forget that last statement, okay? You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The people are discouraged. They're broken. Nehemiah goes in and says, let me tell you what God's done for me. And they went, wow, let's build. So off they go. So if you go over to chapter 4, verse 10, we're at the halfway point. They're dealing with a lot of rubble, okay? When we remodeled our house, we had to totally gut the entire second floor of the house. We got a four-ton rollaway to get rid of the rubble, okay? 
When it was all said and done, and they weighed that so they could charge us, it was over six tons of rubble that came out of our second floor. Old house, plaster, all that stuff. Okay, basically concrete was being thrown into the rollaway. Six tons. And you know what? I know discouragement when you're dealing with rubble. And you're going, I can't do this anymore. All I do is shovel. All I do is sweep. All I do is vacuum. All I do is clean out the shop vac. And it gets old really fast. And they were discouraged. And so when they're discouraged, when they're tired, here comes more discouragement. Here comes more hardship. But it's not just from the outside. It's from their own brothers. In Judah, it was said, this is verse 10, chapter 4, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Anytime we are going to let God do his will in our lives or through our lives, there's going to have to be some rubble that needs to be removed, junk that needs to be cleaned out so there's room for him to move and to have his way in our lives. He wants to conform us into the image of Christ, but that means he has to tear me down and get me out of the house so to speak, so that he can fill it, okay? So they're coming in, the Jews saying, you can't do this. There's no way. Just give up. Ten times they came to Nehemiah and the people. Just give up. Just give up. So chapter 6, verse 15, give up, give up. They dug in. They worked hard. They waited upon the Lord. Verse 15 of chapter 6, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. They rebuilt the, temp, uh, the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. That's miraculous. Listen to this. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. When God moves through us and in us and for us and people see, it glorifies the Lord and points to the fact that he is one that they can trust and put their hope in. But also the enemies of God are afraid because they see God moving. And Satan is afraid of the people of God being emboldened and moving under the hand of God. It's frightening for him. So I want us to go a little bit further. Verse 18, for many in Judah, okay, I'm sorry, let's go to 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. Now, remember, Nehemiah says to 
Tobiah and Sambalat, you have no place, you have no portion, you have no foothold amongst us. Yes, they did. Because there was an, a marriage relationship between the leaders and even the high priest, his son, with the enemy. And they were bound by that oath. When the people of God compromise with the world, it puts us in bondage. It messes us up. You remember when Jesus was talking about the parable of the seed and the sower and the seed that was thrown onto the ground and the tares grew up around him and choked it out and those were the cares of the world and everything? That's what happens when we compromise with the world, the world will choke out our walk with the Lord. It will render it ineffective. It will hinder it. It will stunt its growth. We can't have that. They were bound up because of the compromise. The enemy did have a foothold and it was going to get stronger. Go over to chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 4, and we're going to finish up looking at these things because what's happened now is Ezra has taught the people of the word of God. They have observed the Feast of Trumpets. They've repented before the Lord. They've observed the Feast of Atonement. They have observed the Feast of Tabernacles. They're walking with the Lord. Ezra is teaching them and grounding them in the word of God so that they understand it and they can apply it. They're repenting and they're getting right with God. And so now, a while later, Nehemiah goes back to Babylon for a time period, okay? And then he asks Artaxerxes, hey, can I go back and check on how things are going? Absolutely, you go for it. So Nehemiah goes back. And this is what he finds in chapter 13. And we need to really consider this because it wraps up everything in these books that we've, we've touched on. The compromise, the attacks, the despair, the discouragement, the things that the enemy tries to do. And we need to be wary of these things. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, okay, get this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah, and that's because the, the marriage relationship, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. 
the foothold of the enemy was such that he was now living in the house of God. He had his own apartment. And to make that work, the high priest removed the things of God from the house of God so that the enemy of God could move his stuff in and take up residency. This is why Nehemiah was really, really hacked. And I can just see him just grabbing, you know, the couch, the chairs, the lamps, whatever, and just throwing them out, all right? He did not do things in a politically correct or um, gentle way. We've got sin, we've got garbage in the house of God, and we're going to get rid of it. And so look at what's happened here. Because of compromise, the removal of things of God, the addition of the things of the enemy. This is what Oswald Chambers says about this. Today the world has taken so many things out of the church, and the church has taken so many things out of the world, that it is difficult to know where you are. Think about that. Listen to what Vance Havner says about this. Today the world has so infiltrated the church that we are more beset by traitors within than by foes without. Satan is not fighting churches. He is joining them. The mindsets, the views... The values, the morals of the world are infiltrating the church of God. We see that so much today. And the people are leaving the God of the Bible. They are putting their hope in the things of the world. They are embracing the mindsets of the world. If a nation has a full-on attack from an enemy, they will stand strong. I was, I was reading the biggest mistake that Germany did with Britain. They thought that if they just pounded the children, the cities and all that stuff, that they would break the will of the British. It emboldened the British to fight more. The enemy knows that if we have a full frontal attack against us, the church will stand. That's why the church, the underground church in China, North Korea, the former Soviet Union stuff, were so strong because it was a straight-on attack. So the enemy knows to come in and to set up residence within these temples. And I'm not talking about possession. I'm not talking about losing salvation but to gain a foothold into our relationship with the Lord and to gain a foothold into the church and to even have the church itself fight within itself to weaken it, cripple it, and render it ineffective. You have to deal with the issue. Moreover, verse 10, the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. They weren't putting God first. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading the wine presses on the Sabbath. They were not observing the day of the Lord. 
God was not first. They had compromised. Verse 23. In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Philistines, Ammon, and Moab, the Moabites, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to the sons, their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Listen to this. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? He's like, so you've got, again, they are compromising with the world. They are committing spiritual adultery with the world. Their children, the results of that relationship or those relationships, speak the language of the world. Not the language of God's people. And when we compromise with the world, we will begin to speak the world. Act like the world. Think like the world. As the word says, bad company corrupts. It does. And so Nehemiah is saying, look, Solomon was the great king. Solomon was the wisest king. And doing the very thing you're doing wiped him out and took him out. You think you're going to be able to do better? You need to repent. And he exercised discipline. Church discipline is lacking today. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to hurt people. We want to be sensitive. We want to be kind. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. We are supposed to, you know, bear one another's burdens and stuff. But when we see sin, we're supposed to address it as well. And if it is unrepented sin, then it has to be dealt with because it impacts the church. Like Jesus said, a little leaven, which is a representative of sin, leavens the whole lump. It does. And these are the things that were taking the people of God off the rails as to what God was getting ready to do. Chapter 28, verse 28. And then one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. You know, he lit out after this guy. It's like, get out of here. You have no place here. So it's interesting, at the beginning, Nehemiah is saying, Sambalat, Tobias, you have no place here. You have no foothold. You have no ground here. And because of compromise and because of fear and because of not trusting the Lord and because of embracing the things of the world, the world had a stronghold amidst the people of God. And it was causing them to falter. And Nehemiah had to clean house. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, the message he preaches is repent Make way for the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. And that was a way of saying when a king was coming, 
the people would go before and they would get everything just smoothed out and the road ready so that the place could receive their king. John was saying, get your heart ready, repent, so that you can receive your king. This is critical for us today. And I want to wrap up with the book of James, chapter 4, because it echoes this very thing. James is speaking to the church, okay? James chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this. We know the passage, but think of the context and think of the context of what we've just read. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Remember, Jews were discouraging and attacking and compromising against their fellow brothers in the Lord, okay? Is it not this, that your passions are a war within you? You have a divided heart, carnal and spiritual. You desire and do not have, so you murder. It wasn't physical murder. These are believers, but they hated each other. Jesus says that if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder because it's the same heart. So you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't go to the Lord. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's self-centered. You adulterous people, just like Israel, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Remember, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. And he is jealous for his spirit that dwells within us. We're his, we're his temples. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Wow. Double standards. A divided heart selfish ambitions, compromise with the world, wanting to live in two camps. These are the things that hurt the Christian and hurt the body of Christ. They hinder our growth and our relationship with the Lord, and they hinder the effectiveness and the growth of the body of Christ. So let us not compromise. As it says in James, give no opportunity to the devil because you give him an inch, just like Tobias or Sambalet, they will take a mile and do everything they can, that he can do to steal, kill, and destroy, to ruin the things that God has for you. Family, marriage, ministry, 
every facet of your life is touched by the God who loves you and gave his son for you. Satan wants to ruin that. Don't give him the opportunity. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Repent and stay right with him. Humble ourselves and he will lift us up. Amen. Amen.